day as well. And they went, you've got the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? There's nowhere for us to go. And that's what our Bibles contain. So when Jesus speaks, when Father, Holy Spirit speaks, it's spirit and truth. So it forms us. It has an effect. As Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, in Ephesus, he's like, look, come on, the word of God is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for reproofs, for correction, for guidance and training. It's all useful. And what's it going to do? It's going to form you and enable you to do the things he's calling you to do. And in this house, in this church, we're a people of word and spirit. Because they're so connected, you can't pull them apart. Because the word speaks of the spirit and the spirit speaks through the word. So they're connected and conjoined. Now this, uh, this week, we're, we're going to look at the subject of memorization. Now, if you're anyone like me, you'd look at that and you'd just be like, memorization, you're kidding me, right? I mean, you're taking me back to key stage one, times tables, with my little legs dangling off the end of my chair under my desk, thinking, oh, my days, it's going to move around the room and get to me in a minute. <laughs> and everybody seems to have this capacity for remembering times tables but me. And I just can't do it. And I just get stuck and I mess it up time and again. And so my little brain got whirring and I started crying. Oh. <laughs> and, and there I was at my desk and it got to me. And I, <laughs> he's like, what's the matter, Alastair? What's the matter? My cat died. <laughs> oh, so what, what was his name? Snowflake. My cat died. I've been able to learn my times tables. <laughs> it would have been fine, but my brother was also in the school. <laughs> and he knew we didn't have a cat. <laughs> my little brain was trying to find a way out and it just got me into more trouble. <laughs> Memorization for some of us just feels like a big, long climb up a steep hill with a backpack that we don't understand we're carrying and why on earth would I want to do that? I don't really want to. Or we might think we've got to be like Einstein or have an amazing brain in order to comprehend these things. But what I want us to explore this week is instead of the, the, the kind of the repetitive absolute of memorization. I want us to be thinking about how God can transform our minds. Because it may be that we're not capable of memorization. I know some of you can quote Psalm 119 fully. <laughs> but not everybody can, right? And so what's the opportunity that presents to us when we look at Scripture and we know that God says, look, I want you to take this, I want you to have it in you, and I want it to shape you and transform you. How do we go about that without it feeling like we're doing our GCSEs again? 
Romans 12, 1 to 4 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. That includes our minds, right? Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. I don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And then Paul goes on through chapters 13, 14 to explain to everybody how to go about this life, this new life in Christ. What does it look like in the relationships in your household, in what's going on in your family? How do you explore this? Jesus comes to the scribes. And the, the scribes are the people that really understand the Old Testament, right? They, they study it and they, they've got it down, okay? And he says this to them in Matthew 13, verse 52. This is Jesus. Then he added, Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. See, Jesus presents to these folk who've taken what they've got, which is the Old Testament, the five books and the prophets. They've taken that and they've studied it. And he says, do you know what? There's gold in there. There's treasure in there. When he's confronting the Pharisees, he says, you know, you, you, you search the scriptures that you might have life, but you refuse the one who gives it to you of himself. And so he provokes them and goes, look through the scriptures to me and there you'll find life, not in the word itself and on its own and its study. So he says to the scribes, the gold in there, don't reject it in the old stuff. I don't know if you struggle with the Old Testament. Some of it's a little bit hard to, it's a bit obscure, it's a little bit tricky. It takes a lot of context and understanding. But I encourage you. Seek out wisdom from others who've unpacked it over the years, who've got access into the truths. So when Jesus says, Moses spoke of me, Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, when Jesus says, Moses spoke of me, it's like, okay, where do I find you in there? Lord? What are these truths, these eternal truths? Because the transformation of our minds that God is about is about lifting our perspective from this world to heaven and seeing this world from heaven's perspective rather than the other way around. It's about understanding the nature of reality from God's perspective, not from ours. And when Jesus preaches with parables, with specific challenge, with all the tools that he had, he presents the kingdom of heaven. And when people start to get it, he says, it's close. You're getting close. You're starting to understand it. You're starting to get it now. It's different from this world. So Jesus provokes these scribes and he says, look, what you've read 
in the Torah, the first five books, what you've read in the Law and the Prophets speaks of me. There's gold in there. There's gold in there. But whoever becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from the storeroom both the old treasure and the new. And so Jesus provokes us and he says, are you going to take the two? the Old Testament and the New, and hold them together and shape the New so that you understand the reality of what it is. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is part of the Roman Empire. And the structure of society was such that Nero is the head of the empire. He's the metaphorical first principle of the empire of Rome. It all focuses on him. You know that phrase, all roads lead to Rome. And then all functions lead to Caesar. And so you've got ancient writers like Plutarch and others writing these poems and things saying, a thousand will die by the sword to protect the head of Rome. It's all directed towards this one head, Caesar, because he represents the whole empire and the whole structure of society. So he's to be protected, he's to be honoured, he's to be obeyed, he rules. And for Roman society, the family was a microcosm, a representation of the empire. The father was the head of the family and everything moved in his direction. It was all for him. He ruled. He had an absolute rule even over life and death. The father ruled in the household. Now Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in these dimly lit rooms where his letter was being read out He speaks to the community there and he says, Now husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That was not the paradigm that everybody was living with. That was not the concept of the wider culture. The father of the house represents Nero, who's the father of the empire. And everything is for them. And Paul says, you're to follow the way of Jesus, who gave himself and gave everything for the church, his bride. And he turns it on his head. You can imagine the ripple that went round the room as people heard it. To some, it would be offensive. To others, utterly revolutionary. Like, you're kidding me, right? That bizarre. But Paul wants to retrain, reframe the way they think, transforming their minds through the revelation of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and now what that means for life in the community transforming their minds. He sets a framework 
based on the person of Jesus. Move to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Here we see John the Baptist who is not in the best of places. Prison is never a good place to hang out. And he's there and he doesn't understand what's going on. It's like, what is happening right now? Is this within God's will? Is it outside of God's will? Where is this? Where's the answer? And we pick up in verse 18 of Luke 7. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Excuse me. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God bless those who do not fall away because of me. There's John in prison, and he asks a question of Jesus Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? In part, he's asking, is what I've done with my life been worth it? Because John was making a way for the ministry of Jesus. He was proclaiming who Jesus was before he came. Now, Jesus could have gone, yes, that's right. Off you go, disciples. Go back to John. Let him know. Yes, it's all good. But he doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he unpacks the narrative scheme, the story of John and the story of Jesus and he unpacks it for him and he opens John's eyes out so that he can see beyond the prison walls he's in and understand the circumstance he's in. He lifts John's head and he says, look up, look out, there's so much more to this and you are part of it. And I want you to understand the story you're part of and everything that's happening because that will transform the way you think and what you believe about yourself and your circumstances. Now John knew his scripture. In Isaiah 35.5, he knew that Isaiah the prophet wrote this, When he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. He knew that about the Messiah. He knew that was going to be the case. He knew when Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 61, 1 to 3, the following, it would be about the Messiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Do you remember what Jesus said in his response to John? The poor receive the good news. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners freed. He sent me to tell those who mourn the time of the Lord's favour has come. Jesus roots his response back into the prophecies that John knew very well indeed. The thing is, John also knew he himself was prophesied about by Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, we have this. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord, make a straight way through the wasteland of our God. John knew that Isaiah prophesied about John in that same book. John knew that he was prophesied about by Malachi in three, chapter 3, verse 1. Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming. Jesus refers back to Isaiah He refers back to this in his answer to John because it grounds John back into his identity. It grounds John not only into his identity but also into the whole creation story. Who God is, who he is, what's his purpose. It's much bigger than a, yeah, John, I'm the Messiah. It completely transforms John's mind from looking at the prison walls to realising I'm part of a bigger narrative. And what's happening to me right now is not it. That's what God wants for us as we get into his word. He wants us to understand that the story that we're engaging with is truth and it's so much bigger. And we're getting caught up in his story. What was meant for John, in a worldly sense, was destruction, distraction and death. I'm going to put you in prison, I'm going to remove your ministry, and I'm going to kill you. And of course he gets beheaded. What Jesus does is he says, no, look, this is rooted back into the original word breathed by your creator and prophesied through Isaiah and Malachi. This is who you are. You've proclaimed a way in the desert. You've made a way and I'm the one who's coming and the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk and the poor receive the good news. That's who you are, John. Those prison walls do not define you. This was your purpose and this is your eternal destiny. It's so much more that Jesus communicates to us in the same way that he did with John. And he wants us to get it. He wants to get who we are in him. So that our narrative, our perspectives, the way we think, are transformed. What does Paul say elsewhere? He says, we take captive every thought unto Christ. We tear down every argument that stands in offence towards God in Christ. We take them, we tear them down. And they submit to the person of Jesus Christ. 
When we get into the Word of God, our world is transformed. Our perspective changes and we start to see from heaven to earth rather than just the prison walls or the chaos and the mess that we're surrounded with. There's a Psalm 119 brings into play a number of ways that we can engage with the word of God to help us take hold of these truths that he's got in there for us and actually have them start to shape who we are. So that instead of being shaped by the six o'clock news, by the latest feed that's come through our phone, we're actually shaped by him and his word first. And then the news has to be seen through that new lens, that new perspective. Our circumstances through that new lens and new perspective. Turn to Psalm 119 verses 10 to 16. I've used the Good News translation because it just presents it so nicely and succinctly and simply. Verse 10. With all my heart I try to serve you. Keep me from disobeying your commandments. I keep your law in my heart so that I will not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your ways. I will repeat aloud all the laws you've given. I delight in following your commands more than having great wealth. I study your instructions. I examine your teachings. I take pleasure in your laws. Your commands I will not forget. Repeating aloud, times tables, chemical formulas, periodic tables, French vocabulary. We've done them all, right? We're kind of like, ah, je suis, tu es, il est, nous sommes, vous êtes. You know, but I mean, I won't quite say how long ago that was, but it's still there. It's like my days, it's still there. Seriously. Not that it's much help when I go to France, but anyway, it's still there. And actually, it's the same. It's a gift. Repetition is a gift. And I, I've been guilty of consigning it to young education contexts rather than saying, no, it's a tool for me. I can use it as an adult. I can repeat a psalm. I can repeat scripture and I can get it and I can drill it in to my heart so it moves from being muscle sort of memory to in my heart. And it transforms the way I respond and the way I think to situations. So repetition is really helpful. And we'll have a look in a minute about different ways that we could do that. Delighting in God's word. I don't know about you, I've had moments, right, where I approach God's word Maybe rightly so, because I'm imperfect, but with fear and trembling. I'm like, oh, my days, you know. The surgeon's knife's out. Here we go. Oh, Lord, compared to you, what a scumbag. But actually, when I go to his word and I delight in it, because it is surgical, it does restore me, it does transform me, it does change me and renew me, I'm like, Jesus, I so need this word. I love your word. I delight in your word. 
because it, it not only does its surgery, but it guides my steps and is a light to my path. So I'm less likely to bump into stuff and tread in stuff and all the rest that without it I would do. So helpful, God. I delight in it. I want to come back to it. I just, you know, there's, there's so many refrains in the Psalms where it's just pure delight. And if we can provoke ourselves to approach the word of God with a, a hunger and a sense of delight, saying, God, this is your word, breathe through your spirit. This is you speaking. Let me hear your voice. Let me understand the sense of who you are. Because we know he's good, right? If you got a, a letter in February, I can't remember quite, the 13th, 14th, Valentine's Day, we don't really do it, do we, Jane? No. 14th, there you go, you see. Don't even know when it is. But if I got a letter, you know, just a little card through the door saying, Dear Al, I love you loads, and it wasn't signed, I'd be like, well, I know it's not Jane's handwriting. That's a bit weird. Uh, I don't know what to make of that. That's a bit strange. Uh, I might just put it away. <laughs> but a card from Jane, because I know her, and we're in a covenant relationship, means something completely different. That is a backstory full of 26, 27 years of connection and relationship and her endurance and my celebration, you know, and, and it's like there's so much in there. And so God, God's word to us is not a cold, I love you, and we don't know who's written it to us. It's a, I love you with millennia of history and story and purpose and narrative that says, I love you and you're caught up in this story. You're part of my story. It's who you are. I'm going to break your prison walls down. I want you to see the world from my perspective. I want you to see you from my perspective. My dearly beloved daughter, my dearly beloved son. And when we come to his word and we go, that is who's behind this. We can delight in it, even though it might need to do some surgery on us. Study and examine. Some of you might be of that ilk where you're kind of like, give me the Greek. Give me the Hebrew. Give me the Aramaic. Break it out. Do some beautiful exegesis. Put your hermeneutic books on the side and work through it all and explore. And you've got spider diagrams coming out your ears and boards from, you know, remember the film The Beautiful Mind? Where you go into his study and there's just every surface is covered. And it's all interconnected with bits of string. And they're like, this is the glory of God. It's amazing. Some of you might be like that. Fantastic. Because that paints the narrative for you. And then maybe you can unpack that for the rest of us, right? So to study his word, to examine it, not with a hierarchical position looking down on it, but with a heart position going, examine me, study me as I get into your word. Take pleasure. In his word, the psalmist says, I want to take pleasure, take pleasure in it. I'll read you this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
The words of scripture should never stop sounding in your ears and working in you all day long. Just like the words of someone you love. And just as you do not analyse the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your hearts as Mary did. That is all. Do not ask how to pass it on, but just simply ask, what does it say to me? Then ponder this word long in your heart until it has gone right into you and taken possession of you. There's so many different ways that you can explore engaging with Scripture. We have people who do artwork on a Sunday morning that's birthed out of the study of a psalm or a song. I've seen Angela Vincent and others of you writing amazing flowing notes from messages with artwork interdispersed as you sit and you contemplate the word of God and his, his spirit in you just sends your mind into a thousand directions and you see the interconnected heartbeat of the king speaking with his children. You could make a tune. I mean, my kids came back with a song about circle theorem in maths. Like, wow, that's great. Well, it's never going to be a number one, but that's great. It really helped them understand circle theorem and the different formulas they needed to apply for their exams. But you can make up a tune. It doesn't matter how good it is if it facilitates you remembering it. Writing, songs, poetry, reimagining a story, putting yourself in it. All of these things are tools that can help you engage with the word of God because they're all different, right? Some of us will be able to sit there and read the whole book of Romans and go, that was a wonderful, wonderful hour and a half. And others think, oh, my days. <laughs> not getting into that. You're kidding me, right? That is not going to help me. And then you find another path. You find another route into the scriptures. Yeah? So I don't want you to feel like it's a cookie cutter. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. But these are the opportunities that present. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that both Old and New Testaments are a treasure trove of gold, of beauty. They speak of Jesus. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, unpack those for us as we approach your word. Take these moments we give you in the week before your word just to speak so loudly to us that our perspectives like John's will be utterly transformed by your word, a better word, the word that you speak, which is truth and life, that changes prison cells to an eternal horizon of glory. Jesus, come and speak a better word into life after life today that has a bad word spoken over it. Would you do that by your Holy Spirit, please, Lord? And I pray, give us toolkit to open up your word, to share it with one another and to have our minds transformed by it that our perspective on this world will be utterly from you and nowhere else. Amen.